This is the Toasted Sister Podcast, radio about Native American food. I'm Andy Murphy. got a very special episode for you today. Last week, I went to the Southwest Intertribal Food Summit in Taos, New Mexico, and it was a two-day event that included workshops and panel sessions on things like uh, seed keeping, women farmers, cacao processing, and native culture. And I took photos while I was there, and you can see them on the Toasted Sister social media pages or on the website, toastedsisterpodcast.com. So go check them out. At the summit, I met with so many great Native people who are working for food sovereignty. And in this episode, you'll hear from some of them too. I talked with Lillian Hill from Hopi Tutskawa Permaculture Institute, Terrell Du Johnson from the Tonawatham Community Action Group, Tiana Suazo from the Taos County Economic Development Corporation, Julio Saki from Belize, he's a chocolate producer, Taos Governor Gilbert Suazo Sr., Tammy Sandoval with Tiwa Kitchen, and Rowan White with the Indigenous Seed Keepers Network. So let's get started. I first met with Lillian Hill. She came all the way from Hopi, Arizona to be there, and I spoke to her in one of the warm hoop houses at Red Willow Farm. So tell me what's growing over at Hopi right now. We are just in our harvest phase, and so we're harvesting lots of corn, squash, watermelons, beans, and some traditional crops. And then also, um, we also have growing carrots and potatoes, tomatoes, chilies, and basil. Uh, We have a lot of harvesting that we're doing now, so... Tell me about Hopi. I mean, this seems like a desert oasis here. Tell me about uh, what Hopi looks like. Hopi is a pretty arid, um, high desert landscape, and we get about 9 to 11 inches of rain per year. And it's up on the high Mesa Plateau uh, with valleys in between, and it's a very um, dry area, very dry desert region. Can you tell me about um, why it's important to be uh, growing a lot of these things? Um, I, I know you mentioned a couple of things that were not uh, maybe traditional to the area. It's important to be able to grow your own food because we are in a very rural location. And so a lot of the food that we get nowadays that we're not growing gets trucked in from hundreds and thousands of miles away. So in order to be self-sufficient, it's important to be able to not only grow traditional crops, but also garden crops that can supplement our diet and add to our local nutrition as well. And are you guys um, implementing any like traditional um, ways of growing to some of these uh, newer crops that you guys have there? Yes, we have um, different training programs throughout the seasons where we uh, promote traditional Hopi dry farming and we work with local farmers to be able to train and teach other young people how to grow um, traditionally and also we do have programs where we introduce different techniques of gardening. Um, What we promote is high desert intensive gardening 
where we double dig beds and then we're able to um, grow seedlings in our passive solar greenhouses and then once those seedlings are grown then we transplant them into gardens um, and orchards throughout the reservation so it's a different way of farming but it's also a great way of farming because you're able to grow a lot of food in a smaller space and you're able to use less water as well with the techniques that we're promoting. What's the reason you came all the way from uh, Hopi to here? One of the reasons is that we would like to continue making connections with other tribes throughout the country and to be able to strengthen the bonds that we as Hopi have with our relatives throughout the Southwest. We have a pretty long-standing tradition of knowing other tribes. We have different tribal dances that we um, take part in throughout the year that honor different tribes and pueblos throughout our region. So it's a good thing to be able to reconnect to our um, to our relatives in the different tribes and pueblos to continue that tradition of, of being relatives again. In an adjacent hoop house, I spoke with Terrell Dew Johnson from the Tohonawatham Community Action Group about their new cafe. We took a little small, maybe two-year kind of cut back on a lot of our programming. We also did close our cafe and our gallery, so a lot of people thought that was the end of Toka, but our garden programs, our farm programs are still going on, and so they're still going strong and and continuing. And um, I've been traveling, lecturing, and doing food demos all over the country, so I I just has been, just pretty much have been busy for the past few years. Uh, we did uh, find a location for our cafe. So within two, two weeks from now, we're going to be opening Desert Rain Cafe in a little small town called Ajo. Ajo, yeah. So we're really, it's a pop-up and it's only going to be seasonal, but um, I felt it was about time to, to, to start up again. And our hopes is to have a place up in Phoenix and up in Tucson. What are some of the foods that you're going to be selling at, did you say Desert Rain? Yes. Desert Rain. Well, Desert Rain Cafe um, is, uh, again, um, we, we, we've we had this uh, cafe for about eight years on the Thana Autumn Reservation and uh, got um, worldwide recognition for it because we re- really were focusing on Thana Autumn foods, preparing, um, using the traditional foods and making um, them um, in a modern uh, cuisine kind of thing. And so the choya buds, the mesquite beans, the prickly pear were all um, main ingredients in a lot of the dishes that we we did for the cafe. Um, And the goal was to get community members uh, into eating traditional foods. And it was successful and we worked with schools and we worked with chefs all over the country and uh, it was an amazing uh, cafe and uh, really proud of what we've done. And just over the years, working with uh, tribal programs and the tribe itself, it got a little bit difficult and a little bit territorial. So we decided to close and, and look for uh, another location. So And it took two years, but we finally did it, and we're really excited. And we were sort of just kind of picked off where we left off as far as, like, again, working with um, community members, um, sourcing out traditional food ingredients that a lot of community community members harvest and we're willing to sell and we're still doing uh, a lot of cooking demos and working with school and different programs around the the area on the reservation to to really again get people really involved in their foods and finding out where they come from 
Uh, one thing I've been really interested about uh, lately is just um, the cooking demos, teaching people how to cook and bringing that knowledge to the community. Um, you, you guys have been doing cooking demos for a while. Have you noticed a, a, a difference in how people are uh, talking about food or eating food and cooking food in the community? Yeah, in fact, um, we just did a demo here at this um, this gathering this morning, and we were demonstrating toy buds. Someone asked me that same question this morning, and I said, yes. I said, it makes me really feel old, but we started this program maybe 25 years ago, and we were the only ones that were really trying to get people back into looking at traditional foods, teaching them how to recognize them, teaching them how to pick them and process them, and then eat them. And so kids at that time, they were around um, early childhood age, a kindergarten age, first grade. And so just over the years, seeing them develop into junior high and high school and their thought about traditional foods and, you know, their, their respect and their wanting to know more about it really has um, made an impact, I think, in that generation when we first started. And still working with the schools and still working with different programs, still working with young people and seeing them growing up and really wanting more of, of, of the knowledge of who they, who they are, where they come from, what they eat. Seeing that continue is amazing, you know, and, and other tribal programs are, are taking that model and using them in their own programs, which is really cool. And so, yeah, just seeing not only in our community, but in other communities, uh, um, when you go to different uh, gatherings like this, just seeing how young people are really wanting to know their culture, their, their history and their, their heritage. And so these gatherings really help and it's really cool to, to see all that work that we've done 25 years ago really still impact and really thrive um, today. All right, and uh, wh what's something that you are wanting to focus on maybe in the future when it comes to uh, traditional foods and using traditional foods in uh, our, our kitchens? Well, um, one of the projects that we that was really dear to my heart was a magazine called Native Foodways. And we already had put out four issues, but you know, for us uh, being a nonprofit and really depending on grants, so did the magazine, and so when we sort of scaled back, that was one of the um, programs that we sort of put to the side and focused pretty much on, on things that were really um, needed a lot of attention, like our farm. But uh, I think when we start to pick up now, and hopefully with the cafe, generate some, some profit, uh, I would love to bring back the Native Food um, Ways magazine, just because it really traveled worldwide and actually overseas, and it really got attention in Native communities. And it was just one way of getting and sharing other people's stories to people like, say, in Alaska or New Zealand. And, you know, it's really good that we focused on really shining the spotlight on, you know, just on grassroots people that otherwise probably wouldn't have gotten the notoriety through, you know, articles or newspapers or, you know, stories like that. So, but we seek them out and really focus on what they were trying to do in their own communities. And so putting that in uh, their stories in our magazine, again, it really got um, their story out there and people really were inspired, encouraged, and really wanted to know more about these people that were either uh, producing um, native foods to sell or producing foods for their own community so that that uh, piece of information, that valuable knowledge won't be lost. So I'm hoping to really get the uh, magazine back on track again.
So this native food movement, there's a lot of chefs doing a lot of things. Um, and even though the magazine is not uh, alive, there's still a big presence of native food out in the world. What do you think about that and where do you think it's heading? Well, it's really exciting right now to see a lot of um, uh, a lot of the hard work that myself, along with several other people, 25 years ago had done to really get uh, the movement going. And right now, currently, just it's just amazing. A lot of native chefs are popping up in different regions of the country, and they're focusing on those um, native foods in those particular regions that they're in. But then also that that cross trading that's happening as well. So it's really exciting. It's, it's and, and young people are getting involved. And um, on my uh, reservation. The public school system is actually really trying to get on culinary arts in the, in the school curriculum. And even in our local uh, tribal college, they're really um, recognizing that a lot of people want to get into the culinary field. And so they're hiring native chefs to come in and teach, but also really just trying to get um, local interest and a, a lot of people into that. And so it's really exciting. A lot of native chefs are actually starting to open up their own restaurants in different areas. Sean Sherman, who everyone knows now, has become well known as one of the native chefs that's, that's really currently um, encouraging that native movement and really looking into your own regional foods. Uh, Loretta Oden, who actually is the head chef at this gathering here, uh, who is the godmother of this uh, movement, is here and it's really nice to hear what, you know, back then, 20, 30 years ago, what she was talking about and seeing that come to fruition and having her go and consult and uh, get young people really motivated to, to focus on native foods. And so it's really exciting. I spoke briefly with one of the organizers about why it's important to bring an event like this to Taos. Here's Tiana Suazo. It's just so important. I've been to a lot of the other food summits put on by NAFSA, and I really wanted to go to the one in Iowa, but it just didn't happen. And that one at Great Lakes just really changed, like, my whole life and just, like, my whole view of food and, like, um, gender roles and all sorts of stuff. I also travel a lot, like, to different places. I don't want to say around the world because it's not really around the world. (laughs) But, um... And I've been able to go to those places because of my community. And um, my community helped fund me to go to these food summits too. And so I'm like thinking, you know, how do I get back, give back to them? What can I do for my people? So one way was starting a um, youth gardening program this summer. Um, I had four kids from the Pueblo and we taught them modern and traditional methods of farming and gardening, seed saving, all kinds of stuff. With my boss, Patty, being a member of NAFSA, and um, I have a pretty good relationship with Clayton too, we, they just, they had the idea of putting on a Southwest Food Summit and I was all for it. So I'm just offering my help in any way that I can. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, why do you think it's important to um, really bring together different people from uh, different tribes uh, to, to share all this knowledge uh, with each other and to share meals with each yeah. other? Like the knowledge in the meals are like the, the most important <laughs> things because 
uh, like just you know going to the summit that I have before like everyone's just sharing like what they do in their communities and like even not even by talking but just by example too and it really inspired me and I'm like we can all learn so much from each other because a lot of the issues that we face regarding food and agriculture and everything they're so similar and we can learn so much from one another just different methods of like engaging youth or different methods of farming it's just so important to share that and you know food always brings everyone together we're learning about indigenous food and just being able to talk about it and eat it and seeing it being cooked is just so amazing. I've been waiting to talk with Julio Saki for a long time. He's the owner of Cha'il Mexican Products and he makes chocolate. He came all the way from Belize to join us in Taos. Yes, um, we're here to talk about our cacao and our chocolate products. Cacao, as you know, is one of the mainstay in Belize and is very much a part of the Mayan culture. It is a, a very important aspect of the Mayan culture. It's very integral. And the Maya people look at cacao as an integral part of the culture. We do it in our ceremonies, we do it in our rituals, and we also do it for healing because it has medicinal powers that if you use it the right way, it is a healing treat. But if you just do it like a conventional chocolate, the whole healing part diminishes away. But for us, chocolate is very, very medicinal and very important. Have you had a chance to taste any chocolate from here? And uh, what, do you, what do you think about American chocolate? Um, it's, it's good chocolate. I mean, it's not bad in, 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 in any way or form. It's just that the health benefit as they make it is completely lost along the way because of the many ingredients they add in, um, especially when they add the artificial flavorings and the artificial hardeners and all of these things. Just undo the quality and the true taste of chocolate, unlike how we do it traditionally back home into bars, is all the flavors are there. There are no artificial flavors added. So our chocolate will melt. As soon as it touches your body, it melts because that's how authentic it is. The American chocolate, for me, it's, it's okay. It's good. It's just that health benefits is, is not quite there. I know it's probably going to take a while to, to talk about like the, the process of growing uh, the plant, harvesting, and then grinding it down. But can you maybe sort of give me, give me like a shorter version of uh, turning uh, the seed? It's a seed, right? Turning the seed into a, a bar of chocolate? <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's a lengthy process, but it's not that difficult. It's not that long. So what we do is we go on the farm and we look for the beans that are semi-ripe because you're going to need it in in that state and once you take the bean you break it open inside is a slimy little beans that um it's slippery you don't want to put it in your mouth but once you do it is very very tasty now we take those beans and then we um put them into buckets and transport them to the fermentation facility it goes into big boxes that holds a thousand pounds per box and we put the beans in there, we cap them, we let them ferment for six days. Once they're fermented, we take them out and we put them into a drying facility. It's like a solar cooker and the sun goes directly into the actual um, drying facility and burns the beans. So every day we go manually and then we turn the beans over until they're fully dry. There is actually no moisture. That's a perfect dried bean. Now we take that bean and we go into roasting. And we roast the beans, 
it goes through roasting you know properly we taste it until we get the chocolate flavor that we're looking for then we take it out we cool it off crush it separating the shells from the actual bean then it goes into grinding and then we go into crunching and then from there the beans are flavored the chocolate liquor as it's known now is then flavored and giving all of that natural flavors inside then it goes into the packing room where we turn it into chocolate bars so it takes uh, 21 days from the fermentation to having a chocolate bar in your hands 21 days non-stop okay. All uh, right. What are some issues that uh, you guys are worried about, uh, maybe like environmental or maybe even political that uh, might affect your chocolate or is already affecting uh, chocolate in, in your area? The only challenge that I can see readily, I don't know how much quicker it's going to impact us, but I can see it happening, is that there are these companies, foreign companies coming into the country and they are using fertilizer driven and they are using um, grafted beans and they're bringing these hybrid ones from different places in fact i know of that they are now bringing a special bean that you're growing but you have to have license to grow their beans i don't know what it is i have never looked inside closely at what it is but if if they bring these hybrid beans to our a domestic indigenous bean it is going to go ahead and cross with our beans that can eliminate our authentic bean that we have that the Maya people grow because our bean is we don't need to use any fertilizers no chemicals they're all organically driven and all you really need to do is just really take good care of them without having to use any chemicals but if these other beans come in they can create a cross in my mind in my own view and that then that can change the whole genetics of your bean and make it i think more um, susceptible to viruses and fungus that can easily wipe you out so that is the major concern i have in my mind that i think that is going to affect us in the near future but it's going to be a challenge to overcome these people because they have money and then they're politically connected that makes it so difficult for us, the marginal indigenous people, to overpower them because they have, they know how, how to do it. So how are uh, indigenous people sort of responding to that? It's, 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 not, it's not known to them. I don't think they are aware of the major impact it can have because um, I can clearly remember years ago that we used to plant a particular kind of rice and that rice just grows wild and beautiful and you have a whole supply of rice. And then they come to the agriculture department and they tell you, we're going to give you the best variety of rice for maximum yield. They allow the farmers to plant these um, rice among their domestic rice that they normally plant. Over the years, that rice is no longer now grown because when you plant them, they don't grow anymore. You have to go back to these people and buy your supply to be able to plant rice. So I am afraid that this might happen to them in terms of, 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 of cacao trees. But they don't know. They're innocent because they're not exposed to these kind of ideas or, 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 or teachings as to what um, commercial beans can do against domestic um, local indigenous beans. And uh, uh, Dila de los Muertos is uh, coming up. Um, does chocolate have uh, a place in the in this holiday? Um, not not totally, because um, uh, the Dia de los Muertos is more a Thanksgiving for the dead. But we mostly use the beans as a Thanksgiving 
for more health, for more um, production, for good life and all of these things. So chocolate is not totally used in that form. They do use it a little bit, but not a whole lot. Can you tell me about um, how Mayan people celebrate this holiday and do you celebrate this holiday? Um, the Dia de los Muertos, as we as they call it in Spanish, uh, we call it in our Maya language as Hanal Pechan. It's, it's, it's a day where we celebrate the death of our people and we, we, we set a table where they have all the different food that they enjoy and we play music for them and on the particular day we would take all of that food and we go leave it in the jungle so that we think that they, you know, they would have enjoyed it after all of this celebration has taken place. Um, the Maya culture is pretty much the same as that of the Yucateca people culture in Mexico and uh, there is a merger there the celebration is almost the same, except that the kind of food that we make is different. So that is what you would find that is going to be um, served for the dead. And we could have as much as 150 different kinds of food set on a table for the dead to come in and, and, and celebrate. Because we believe that this is a time now um, that the, uh, the dead are walking, like in the form of a bird, in the form of little um, lovely uh, flies, they come and they, they would come in and then visit us again in, in the form of these spirits. So we set the table for them and we also believe that they will bring in their sisters, their mom, their families, whoever they want to invite. So we have to have enough food for them to celebrate. And if we don't do this, we think that um, we have we have upset them and that the following year they will not visit us. So we have to do this every year to keep the tradition of, 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 of the dead. So we believe also in the dead. So this is why we have to celebrate it. And can you name a couple of these foods that are put out on the table for them? We do the traditional Maya dishes. We call these ones caldo, caldo cash, which is a traditional chicken soup. But we don't use um, coloring. It's just plain white. We also have what we call the tamale, the real Mayan tamale. Not the little ones that you find around, but the real big one. They weigh about... Uh, two pounds per tamale with lots of meat inside. We also serve the traditional Mayan dish. It's called kool or kuhon cabbage in English. It's made from a palm and it's a cabbage that we, we cook for them. It's one of the other things that they enjoy. And then also we serve uh, traditional drinks like the pinol, the pozole, and all of these um, traditional drinks that the Maya people have like the chocolate, you know, drinks set on the table, different um, forms of chocolate drinks in corn, in, um, in, 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 in the, also in the cooking that they do. So there is a different mixture of chocolate among this because, you know, chocolate, as we all celebrate it, is, a, is what unifies us even from the dead and the living. So we have to have it on the table so that they can feel a part of us. Goes, I mean, what, what do you think about how we sort of take Mexican food and sort of turn it into this weird American monster? <laughs> <laughs> I think different people look at it differently and I was as I was saying in my presentation earlier today that um, I want to look at the point viewpoint of chocolate because chocolate to the mind people is so special it's not something that you can just take and you crazily abuse it so when you go to a Mayan culture or to a Mayan place or to a Mayan celebration chocolate is special however in the commercial world today they look at chocolate as a treat so they would just give it away like crazy and really expensive and then uh, enjoy it but they miss the point of enjoying chocolate because the chocolate we have here is completely diluted against the um, the ones that we make that is totally healthy and 
that is the kind of the same thing that happens with the the traditional Maya food. They take it and they blow it out of proportion and it misses the the point of having that food for its purpose. But the beauty about it is that you mix it. You can enjoy it in different colors and form and shape and that's the exciting part of it. So I guess it's a, it's, it just depends to how you look at it and, and how you appreciate it. But yeah, you go around in different places and you find the food differently, different tastes, different ways done. But all in all, it's the same thing. It's the same taco that we're talking about. Taos Pueblo Governor Gilbert Suazo Sr. led a panel session on the fight for Blue Lake. It's one of the lakes that was taken away from the tribe back in 1906. That was when President Roosevelt signed away a huge swath of land that belonged to the Taos Pueblo. There was a lot of prospecting and grazing going on in the Blue Lake area in the, like in the 1800s. And uh, there was always interference in our cultural uh, uses of the area. Then uh, the Spanish and the United States concept of uh, ownership, land ownership, uh, it reduced the sizes of our lands. You know, we didn't know they were taking all this land. You know, we just assumed that this land was uh, has always been ours and will always be ours. And uh, to me personally, a shock that I had was uh, one day when my father told me that. Uh, the mountain that we see up here you know, was not our land anymore. And I didn't believe him, you know. I said, how could that be? It's our mountain, how could it not be our land? So he told me that uh, the federal government took it away and it's not, it's not our land anymore. And I think to me, probably that's when uh, my fight for Blue Lake began. And I was just uh, probably maybe about the age of these uh, young boys here, you know. And I, I never forgot that what he told me. That was a shock to me. Later, I realized that, uh, yes, uh, even that mountain was part of the lands that uh, were taken away from us. But, uh, you know, we never relinquished our, our ownership of these lands. Uh, we always had that relationship with these lands. And uh, we, we always continued to look to these lands as uh, our lands. 1906, uh, President Roosevelt, uh, he signed uh, away Blue Lake, you know, he, he didn't consult with us or ask us or anything. He sat there in Washington, D.C. at the White House and a stroke of a pen, you know, he took away our lands from us. So that's when uh, the official fight for the return of Blue Lake began. No consultation. And then uh, the federal government was... Uh, asserting its control of the area, uh, these mountains. And uh, so there were conflicts and confrontations, uh, and uh, little did my people know that it would be 90 years before our people would be made whole with uh, these lands. So our people protested that taking over the years, you know, back in those days, uh, our tribal leaders, you know, they didn't speak English. Uh, they spoke our Indian language. Uh, so in the midst of that, you know, how do you deal with uh, the uh, Washington machinery? Uh, but somehow or another, they were able to speak out and they were able to uh, assert themselves and uh, it resulted in uh, what they called a, a special use permit that was uh, given to our people 
and uh, that happened uh, in the 1930s. They said you can have a special permission from the federal government to use this land, but it was only like for uh, maybe like uh, certain periods of times, and uh, other times it was still open to uh, anybody that wanted to get into the, uh, the area. In the 1950s, uh, our people filed uh, their Aboriginal land claim under the Land Claims uh, Commission that included uh, uh, the Taos Valley, Blue Lake, the surrounding mountain areas. Uh, 1965, the Claims Commission uh, affirmed uh, Taos Pueblo's ownership of the area that we were claiming, including Blue Lake. And they said that we'll give you monetary compensation. That was their answer to our wanting uh, the lands back. So that, that was not acceptable for our people. Uh, they said for the Blue Lake land, we're not going to take money. For the other areas that are out there that uh, there's really no hope of getting that back, we didn't say we were going to accept the money, but we told them that uh, we're not taking any money for the Blue Lake area, that we would fight for the return of that area. And uh, the only available option was congressional legislation. So the Washington, D.C. process uh, began in the 1960s, and uh, our, the rest of our Aboriginal land claim was in abeyance, you know, it was at a, a standstill. 1970, July 8, 1970, this is when the, the fight for Blue Lake in Washington was uh, really coming to a head. In those days, uh, discussions were always about what we were going through in the fight for Blue Lake. There were going to be uh, congressional hearings in the Senate Indian Affairs Committee. And uh, at that time I was uh, a young man and uh, I was one of the young people that were speaking out in support of our tribal council's fight for the return of Blue Lake. So the tribal council then uh, asked me to uh, testify on behalf of the uh, younger generation. Uh, and uh, we went to Washington. And they told me that uh, you need to come uh, one day early. So there's something important going to be happening and we want you to come a day early and bring four councilmen with you. So those four councilmen and I went to Washington, D.C. and that night our travel delegation met. And uh, what the big thing was was that they said that we were scheduled to meet at the White House with the president. Uh, nobody knew what it was about. We were just summoned to meet with the president. So we went to the White House uh, that next day on uh, July the 8th, and we met in uh, the room here with uh, the president, President Nixon at the time. So th what the big announcement was from the president was, uh, first of all, he said, uh, I have an Indian policy that I'm, I'm going to introduce. He said, this Indian policy is, uh, it's meant to help Indian people because ever since I was a young man, I, I know what your people, Indian people, have been going through. Your lands have been taken away, you haven't been treated right. But this policy that uh, I'm going to unveil today is a policy that uh, is going to help Indian people across the country. And you, Taos Pueblo delegation, you're here, you're going to be having a Senate hearing tomorrow. So I'm here to pledge my support for your cause. I'm supporting 
the return of Blue Lake to your people. And with the Indian policy that I'm going to unveil, said the return of Blue Lake is going to be the cornerstone of my Indian policy, is what he said. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that policy is still alive. You know, that's what self-determination is about. So on July the 8th, uh, that's when uh, President Nixon endorsed uh, our bill for the return of Blue Lake and uh, announced that new policy for American Indians that led to self-determination, Blue Lake being the cornerstone of that policy, and then the bill itself was signed on uh, uh, December the 5th, 1970. Taos Pueblo is a UNICEFCO World Heritage Site that's mostly open to visitors, but there are rules and restrictions that you have to follow as a visitor. And there's also food around every corner. Inside some of the clay and straw structures are arts and food vendors, and one of them is called Tiwa Kitchen, which is actually a small satellite location of the larger restaurant that's located about a minute outside of Taos Pueblo. And I met with Tammy Sandoval. Her parents started Tiwa Kitchen. Tiwa Kitchen opened 23 years ago. My parents, Ben and Debbie Sandoval, Um, both from Taos Pueblo, started the business. Uh, They had to get approval through Tribal Council um, to get their restaurant business going. I know it took some time to do that. Um, They bought land down where it is located now on Veterans Highway. They used to sell up here at the Pueblo and um, like all the baked goods that we have, the outdoor oven bread and the pies and cookies, they started selling, doing food vending and then They had, of course, a bigger dream, and they didn't want a boss, so they started the restaurant there. (laughs) I guess that's how it started. What kind of foods are uh, served over at uh, Tiwa Kitchen? So we have our buffalo meat. We have a plate called Doatel, and the buffalo all comes from our tribal herd here. We have over 200 buffalo here, so we buy one from our tribe every year, and that's what we serve there. Um, We have a blue corn fry bread that my parents created as well, like 23 years ago. They started serving it there at the restaurant. Uh, We also have all our baked goods stuff, like the bread, pies, cookies, red chili stew, of course. (laughs) We do a lot of catering, too, so we could make you any menu that you would want. And we have a signature, like, choke cherry syrup. That is really good that we... And we, of course, we harvest the choke cherries and wild plums here, and we use those a lot as well. You guys get a lot of tourists from all over the world. Uh, what do you hope they, they learn about uh, Taos Pueblo? What do you hope they learn about the food when they visit and, and they purchase some of these things? Well, we just hope that they try some of these unique things that we make in the outdoor ovens, and we... We pride in that, I guess, in that um, that we do make everything that we serve here in an outdoor oven every day. So we just want them to taste that. We do bread baking demonstrations as well when scheduled, and we just want them all to get a little piece of our history and culture and our special foods that we're allowed to share with the rest of the world. 
In the middle of the day, on the second day of the summit, the women of Taos Pueblo made a feast for us. And I heard they butchered a bison, or I think it was two bison for the occasion. Anyways, at this feast, there were two kinds of red and green chili stews. Pueblo bread, which is my favorite kind of bread. Pueblo cookies, a bread pudding flavored with wild plums and some good old picnic foods like potato salad and fruit salad. Everything was delicious and it was such a good day. But the day got even better when Rowan White, indigenous seed keeper, brought out a large gray and greenish squash and a bag of seeds. I talked to her after she gifted those things to the people of Taos Pueblo. Yeah, so we've been involved in a project called the Seed Rematriation Project, which is working with the Indigenous Sea Keepers Network uh, is collaborating with a number of uh, public access seed banks, universities, museums, uh, and other institutions to discover where our traditional and heritage and uh, indigenous seeds exist outside of our tribal communities and um, to begin the rematriation of those seeds back home to their uh, communities of origin. So uh, we worked in collaboration with Seed Savers Exchange, which is the largest uh, public access seed bank in the country. Uh, and we've identified quite a number of varieties in their collection that have tribal origin. And so the Taos Pueblo squash was one of the squashes that was in their collection and so they grew it out this se this season um, under the guidance of um, some of our indigenous seed, seed keeper network um, members uh, and then we connected with Taos Pueblo um, to um, facilitate the rematriation of the squash back here um, kind of as the culmination of this event so it was a seed that had traveled far away from its community and as native peoples we see these seeds as our living relatives they're a part of our um, inheritance and they're part of our family so to bring those seeds home was like such a powerful and healing uh, event today. What do you want to see the people of Taos uh, sort of doing with these seeds? Well I had a great opportunity to talk with several of the women here at Taos Pueblo, many of the farmers and they were so um, emotional and so excited and inspired that these seeds made their way home back to Taos Pueblo and um, they talked about how they were going to grow them on the farm, you know, a whole field of them and continue to um, distribute them and share them with tribal community members so that this uh, squash can flourish again in its community of origin. So I just like, look really look forward to, to hearing stories of these seeds nourishing and feeding community members for seasons to come. I would like to thank everyone at Taos Pueblo for allowing me to capture stories from there, for feeding all of us, and for opening up their community and homes to us. The Southwest Intertribal Food Summit was put on by the Native American Food Sovereignty Alliance, Taos County Economic Development Corporation, Traditional Native American Farmers Association, Red Willow Farm, and the Taos Pueblo. Toasted Sister, supported by Kiwanik Broadcast Corporation. Music was created for Toasted Sister by CWI Own. Go listen to their music on Bandcamp and follow them on social media. But how do you spell it? It's C-W-A-Y-O-N. 
the end of the year is approaching and that means end of the year bills are due and it takes some change to host more than 24 hours of programming on SoundCloud and on the website. So if you'd like to support this podcast, go over to ToastedSisterPodcast.com. You can donate any amount. You can get a Toasted Sister coffee cup or you can get a copy of the one and only Native American food calendar. And guys, I checked it out. This is the only native food photography calendar out there. So get yours before the year ends. Here are people I'd like to say thanks to. They bought a calendar. Jonathan has one in New York. Jamie has one in Colorado. And Carrie has one in Albuquerque. Thanks, guys. And thank you for listening. I'm Andy Murphy from the Navajo Nation.